You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Proofs of concept. The bad guys are loving them, and they're now on Twitter. Some considerations of what to do in the wake of that Russian boy's sale of 270 million email credentials. Ransomware continues its run, but the bad actors haven't forgotten DDoS either. Notes on the security marketplace with a particular look at cyber innovation in Australia. The LAPD cracks a locked iPhone 5S, and that's tougher than what the FBI had to do with the San Bernardino iPhone 5C. And it seems that there's one more guy who isn't, in fact, Satoshi Nakamoto. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary and week in review for the week ending Friday, May 6th, 2016. Yesterday, Recorded Future released a study of -of proof-of-concept exploits. While proofs of concept are often developed by legitimate white hat security researchers, Recorded Future has found that their production and distribution by black hats is surging. They've also found that Twitter seems to be replacing Pastebin as a favorite venue for sharing exploits, which suggests that the border between the digital world and its underworld continues to become more porous. We spoke with Recorded Future's Nicholas Espinoza about the report, and he outlined some of the motivations for creating proof-of-concept exploits. Sometimes, he says, it starts with curiosity. In our own data, we've observed people talking about proof-of-concepts being developed for ICS and SCADA systems just to prove how vulnerable they are on some of the world's most critical systems. Uh, in addition, you know, they might be developing these proof of concepts to force a vendor to develop a critical patch. This is usually a name and shame sort of example. So a vendor XYZ might not have paid to a critical vulnerability. So a researcher or a gray hat or black hat might develop and disclose an exploit for this particular vulnerability to essentially light a fire underneath them and force them to develop something quickly. In addition, people are using these uh, proof of concepts to showcase their own skill set. So this might be someone showing their proficiency uh, in a particular uh, area, usually for bragging rights, kind of building uh, camaraderie against a hacker crew that might be aligned with. And then of course, uh, people also do this to actually hunt down jobs. Then finally, this is a little bit rare, is when people develop proof of concepts and vaguely obfuscate code or include comments to make it uh, non-functional. So this is plausible deniability for developing a workable exploit. So people will maybe throw in a disclaimer saying, don't use this or barely fuzz some of their work. And this is usually the most uh, concerning example that we've seen in our data sets. One of the things the report outlines is how social media has become a dominant mechanism for distributing proof-of-concept exploits. We're trying to hone in on the conversations where individuals are sharing proof-of-concepts and the trends within those conversations. An example, you know, at a basic level is, hey, I've got a proof-of-concept for XYZ vulnerability. Check it out here at my GitHub, and then they'll throw in a link. Uh, Social media is being used to amplify the discussion and visibility of those proof-of-concepts at those sites. 
Espinoza cautions that the pace of POC exploit development is only getting faster, and it's important to track multiple sources of information. I think the, the key takeaway is, you know, there is an entire discussion on the open, deep, and dark web that a lot of organizations aren't paying attention to point blank. These conversations develop at the speed of social media, you know, case in point being most of our content comes from Twitter uh, on this particular bit of research. And for organizations like NIST who try to track exploits and if they exist for a vulnerability, NIST is not going to be able to keep up with the pace that these uh, discussions are occurring at. The vendors are also unable to kind of keep tabs on this in real time. And then, of course, the organizations that actually deploy the hardware and software are ultimately left kind of uh, with the burden of looking for these exploits. So you need a mechanism in place, um, whether it's recorded future or something else, to kind of keep tabs on those conversations and see if your production environments uh, or you know software and hardware that you're running are vulnerable and have working exploits out there today because you just can't rely on NIST and your vendors to keep you abreast of that in real time. That's Nicholas Espinoza from Recorded Future. Their website is recordedfuture.com. People are still wondering what to do about that big pile of email credentials the Russian kid sold to hold security for a buck and a pat on the head. Some experts are telling NBC News that, just to be safe, everyone should change their personal email account passwords. It's generally a good idea to change passwords, especially if the change also makes them stronger, and several security companies are advising people to move to passphrases. On the other hand, lest anyone panic, Wired points out sensibly that there's probably less to the horrible-sounding 270 million credentials stolen story than meets the eye. As even the Malchik who sold them admits, the credentials in question have leaked out over the years in various breaches. We heard from Last Line about the general problem compromise of email credentials presents. Brian Lang, the company's vice president, products and business development, reminded us that free email services, while free, are still a business, and generally the business therein is advertising. He thinks those services should up their security game and induce users to make their passwords stronger and change them on a regular basis. Multi-factor authentication might also be a nice upgrade. The users themselves could also do a better job of taking care of security, especially by using password managers. But until you, user, are willing to work a bit harder to protect yourself, Lang has this advice. Quote, change your pet's name monthly, preferably with a mix of upper and lowercase letters. To which we can only add, Rover, we hardly knew you. We mean R0 lowercase v3r exclamation point. Good dog. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Our 
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Joining me is Dale Drew. He's Chief Security Officer at Level 3 Communications. Dale, you have an interesting story to share about the discovery of a new DDoS vector. What can you tell us about that? You know, uh, so the Level 3 uh, Threat Research Lab uh, recently identified a new uh, attack pattern in the, in the uh, Internet backbone uh, where uh, bad guys have found a new way to, uh, uh, to do a, what's called a DDoS amplification attack. And this is basically where a bad guy can send uh, a small packet and result in a very large packet return. And so when they spoof that traffic to make it look like it's coming from the victim, that very large return ends up hitting the victim uh, and uh, it, it amplifies uh, the amount of traffic going to them. So what we saw was is we saw a bunch of uh, bad guys who were experimenting in a new amplification attack not only developing the code, uh, but beta testing it on a number of victims. And it used a, a service called PortMapper. Now, PortMapper is a Unix-based service where you can query the Unix server and say, what network-based services are you running? And it will return back a list of those services. So I send a very small request, and I get a very large return uh, as a result. And so uh, we sent out an early warning notice on our blog about it and to a number of our industry partners. Uh, because we found uh, about 12 million systems on the Internet that had port mapper uh, accessible. So there are 12 million uh, nodes that could help amplify a DDoS attack. And so our, you know, our recommendation in this early warning notification was that people really need to make sure that they have uh, firewall rules uh, enabled to block access to uh, traffic from the public Internet, as well as making sure that they disable all unnecessary services on their systems. And it really seems like a fairly simple uh, guidance. I mean, this has been guidance that's been, you know, been around for decades. Uh, but it's really those simple things that have substantial leverage impacts on on uh, being able to better protect uh, not only the victims of the, these attacks, but the internet backbone as a whole. All right, good advice, Dale Drew from Level Three Communications. Thanks for joining us. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With Identity Orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. Ransomware has been much in the news this week. Silence has published a dissection of Alpha Locker. An unknown white hat has subverted Drydex, substituting dummy files for ransomware payloads. And of course, Heimdall has exposed the charity team's brassy attempt to nudge its victims into payment with the promise that the proceeds of the extortion will go to the children. And how could you be so heartless as to turn down the charity team's appeal? Here's how. Realize that the chance that a Sasquatch will turn out to be Satoshi Nakamoto is probably higher than the likelihood that a kid's charity will get the Bitcoin you pony up. So let's see, counting on my fingers here, it's about the likelihood of getting a winning Powerball number, right? I mean, Satoshi, Sasquatch... At any rate, other forms of criminal attack haven't disappeared. DDoS, for one, is still a hacktivist favorite, as Anonymous hits against the central banks of Greece and Cyprus in Operation Icarus a test. Such hacktivism aims, of course, at business interruption, but there are other reasons threat actors engage in denial of service. Misdirection is one of them, and Forcepoint this week published a study that shows how this can work. The Jakku botnet is now said to have 19,000 zombie machines. While it could be used for conventional spam and distributed denial of service, its principal purpose still appears to be highly selective attacks, mostly against East Asian targets. Forcepoint, which has been tracking the Jakku campaign, notes that the attackers seem to be masking precise targeting in the noisy traffic of a big botnet. In industry news, FireEye and CyberArk both reported earnings late yesterday. FireEye posted a better-than-expected loss of $0.47 per share on $168 million in revenue. CyberArk reported $0.23 in earnings per share on $46.9 million in revenue. FireEye also saw an increase in security subscription services, which it sees as playing a greater role in its business strategy going forward. FireEye's CEO Dave DeWalt will move up to the executive chairman role, with Kevin Mandia filling in behind him as the new CEO. Cybersecurity research and development and building a strong domestic cyber sector are priorities for Australia's government, as we learned when we heard Data61's presentation at Sinet ITSEF last month. Today we hear from Data61's Adrian Turner, who gave us a view from the organization charged with driving security innovation forward in Australia. This strategy is a comprehensive strategy that covers aspects of innovation and new industry creation, including technology transfer from the research sector right through to the other end of the spectrum, providing infrastructure, threat intelligence, sharing capability and infrastructure for industry to be able to to do what happens organically today in a more structured way. What we've done is we've identified areas where we think we can make a difference and, and be world leading. And then we've gone back into the uni sector and into partners to um, find people that, that have domain expertise and are working on parts of the problem. So we're taking their fundamental research, bringing market context, and are very focused on the translation of that research into solutions that can be consumed by the market. An important aspect of Australia's commitment to cyber, according to Turner, is the recognition of evolving trends in the global marketplace. 
it's not just that every industry is becoming data-driven, which it is. It's as those industries become data-driven, they take on different economic structures. And the shift is as profound as when we move from agriculture to manufacturing. Now we're moving to platform economics and the characteristics of those platforms as we've seen with companies like Google and Apple and Facebook and others is uh, that they, they tend to have natural monopolistic tendencies. There, there tends to be learning algorithms at the centre of those that take data feedback loops and um, deliver better services at scale. So for Australia, we have a choice. We either be participants in those platforms or we lead in helping to transform our strength industries like healthcare, mining, agriculture, uh, and services industries and develop some of those ourselves. And I think the opportunity for Australia is, uh, is global, but it's also regional, um, in Indo-Pacific regional opportunity. It's a coordinated effort engaging a variety of stakeholders throughout the nation. The first goal that we have is to drive national alignment and bring global context to the work that's going on nationally. So for the country, uh, in the last months, we've had the publishing of a defence policy paper. We've had a national cybersecurity strategy policy published. We've had the establishment of a cybersecurity growth centre, which is a group to coordinate cyber activities across the country, across the uni sector, right, right through to providing um, infrastructure and programs to drive deeper collaboration in industry and, and between industry and government, as well as tax incentives for startups and, and early stage investing. So we're at a moment in time where new policies and new strategy are all lining up and we have, we have a role to bring that together nationally. There is a recognition in Australia that cybersecurity doesn't have geographic boundaries and it's uh, a shared responsibility. And so we are being aggressive in partnering internationally. We're engaged in dialogues with um, people across the public and private sector in other parts of the world to make sure that we're also learning from, from the things that have worked well at a national level and a system level in, in other countries in the world. That's Adrian Turner, CEO of Australia's Data61. You can learn more about them at csiro.au. The Los Angeles Police Department succeeded in gaining access to a murder victim's locked iPhone 5S, previously thought more resistant to cracking than the iPhone 5C used by the San Bernardino Jihadist. They're said to have succeeded by using the service of a forensic expert. Observers expect this to inform the crypto wars, making requirements for backdoors or other vendor assistance less urgent. Finally, Craig Wright seems to have given up, albeit ambiguously, his claim to be Satoshi Nakamoto. His blog says that he just doesn't feel up to continuing the struggle. He closes with a simple, I'm sorry. You decide. But you can always stand up with the rest of us and shout, I'm Satoshi. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. 
We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. Now. 